reporter listeners welcome to another week another week's edition of the arts report it is september the 30th the last week of september and i am christine kim we have in the studio today me ashley park me andy ta (laughs) we are broadcasting to you all to all of you listeners live from the university of british columbia on unceded musqueam territory on today's show we've got a pretty packed show uh we have a interview a pre-recorded interview with david finlay the director of a short film um that's going to be featured at vif um called nephew we've also got a live phone interview with ubc alumni katie wright who's involved in the ongoing musical the best laid plans to add to this great lineup, we've got some VIF reviews from Ashley mm-hmm. um, and Andy. Andy. We've also, uh, to end off our entire show, we've got a live interview with some of the people who um, are yeah. performing in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, Studio 58, Romeo um, and Juliet. They will be calling in. We'll take a uh, bit of a kind of a look into their new sort of update to the classic play that we all know and love and i won't spoil it guys but it's gonna be something really new without further ado here is the interview uh with david finlay we won't be playing the full thing but you can be able to find the full version on our mix cloud we've also got a link for it up already on facebook that means check it out My name is Christine Kim, and I am here with a film director who has his film in the upcoming Vancouver International Film Festival. Do you want to just tell me about the film and um, also your name and how you are involved in the film? For sure. Uh, my name is David Finley. Uh, I just graduated from UBC, and I made a film when I, while I was there, a short film called Nephew. What is Nephew about? Uh, so Nephew is about, um, it's the story of a young man uh, meeting his uncle for the first time. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a journey for this young man to, uh, after having seen his estranged uncle, um, to kind of decide you know, whether to meet him and kind of what the consequences of, of reaching out to him might be. Um, and it's based on an, an experience that I had um, two years ago meeting my uncle for the first time in since I was like a, a baby, like a really small child, uh, at my grandmother's funeral. And so seeing him was like, wow, this is a total stranger, but someone who feels familiar and he looks like my dad and he kind of looks like me too. Uh, so that's what got me to, uh, to write the script in the first place two years ago. It's interesting to hear that this was inspired by true the true events in your life. I did hear that there was a high-profile Quebec quadcast in it. Um, what was your reasoning for that? Is that a major part in the story? Um, well, I'm from Quebec City, so um, so I grew up speaking in French. Uh, life was in French, but my dad's from New Brunswick, so I grew up at home. It was English and French. Um, the reason, I mean, I just those are just actors that I always admired, and. Um, so for the part of the uncle, uh, to me, it just made sense that um, even though his part is in English, uh, he's a French chemical actor, and uh, basically, you know, I had my extended family was like English, and then the English side and the French side, so it made sense for him to, you know, it, it added like that extra cultural difference uh, between them for when they meet, and um, so yeah, uh, Yves Jacques, a uh, great actor that I had seen in Denis Arcand's film and uh, Claude Miller's films, and he was in Xavier Dolan's uh, film a couple of years ago. Uh, so I reached out to him, and and uh, he agreed to be in the film. And then same thing for Luis Portal, who I just grew up watching on TV and in movies. So I reached out to their agents, and they they were into it, uh, based on showing my work from from before that I had done. 
What was it like, um, you know, being a recent graduate from the film school and then being able to work with these actors that you've admired since you were growing up? Was that nerve-wracking? What was the experience like? Yeah, so actually we shot the movie this time last year pretty much, so I was still in school. Um, but it was, it was amazing. It was a little intimidating at first, but not for very long. Like, they're, they're just all about the work and making the movie the best it can be. Uh, so it, was a, it felt like my first real filmmaking experience working with professional actors. And it felt uh, uh, almost easy in the sense that we just understood each other really well and not a whole lot had to be said. And I learned a, a, a ton from, from working with them. So, yeah. That's great to hear. And as a director, I'm curious as to how much control you have over um, the script, the filming technique, the actor's way of interpreting the script. Did you have to do a lot of, do directors have to do a lot of micromanaging or is your style of directing um, a lot more hands-off? Um, that's a good question. I'd say, hmm, I'd say my strengths, <laughs> I've always been to like surround myself with great people. Like I say I have the best friends in the world and that's like my best quality in a way so um, so being a director uh, I apply that skill in finding the best cinematographer I can find to work with say best editor composer and then actors and just kind of getting them together and point them in, in the same direction so that was that's my job essentially um, so as far as micromanaging um, it's it's hard not to I guess because you have you just sort of have to because um, that's your job essentially is just to uh, not just oversee but really just make the film with these people but um, but yeah I allowed a lot of freedom to to the actors for example um, Louise Portal her segment we shot in Montreal and it was just for one day and it's kind of a interview like uh, sequence. And basically, I had originally written the uh, the script in English, and her part's in French. So I quickly translated it, and then she took that and kind of kept the the structure of it and the the backbone of it, but totally changed it. And it, it felt if if you see it, it feels like like a real documentary account. And that's one of the great uh, compliments I've had so far with people asking me, like, you know, not knowing who she is being like, what, so was that scripted or not? And so, uh, so that was great, yeah. That's really interesting, and I bet when I see the film, I'll be able to understand a little bit more about that scene. Um, I also heard that this film was shot on 16 millimeter film. Right. For uh, those of us who aren't, who haven't been to film school, what does that mean and why is that significant? Um, for, for anyone who's into making movies, that's, that's um, or almost, it's like a pretty big uh, thing and hot topic because in the last 10 years, movies have gone from being like big Hollywood movies, I'd say. In the last 10 years, it'd be like 95% were shot on film and 5% were shot digitally. And only in like 10 years, that flipped to 95% digital and only 5% film just because it's more cost-efficient and I guess producers uh, don't see the difference so they're just they just go digital um, whereas a lot of purists uh, I'd say um, wanna preserve film because of the way it looks uh, because a lot will argue that it looks better and that's and I I'd say I'm kind of one of those people I'm happy to Welcome back, Arts Reporter listeners. I hope you enjoyed that interview with the film director, David Finley. And again, um, please do check out the full interview um, that we have up on our Mixcloud. Um, and you can find the link to that on our Facebook page. Uh, right now, we have Katie Wright um, on the phone. Hi, Katie. Hi. Hi there. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so you. much for um, being on our show today. Can you tell us about this musical that you are involved in and what your role in it is? Sure. Um, it's called The Best Laid Plans, a musical, and it's an adaptation of a novel by, uh, a Canadian novel by uh, Terry Fallis, which um, he actually wrote uh, and couldn't get anybody, couldn't, couldn't get any 
any publishers even to to respond. Um, mm-hmm. So he released it as a as a podcast, and it got phenomenally popular. And then he self published, and then it then he won the Leacock Prize, the Stephen Leacock Prize for humor. And then all of a sudden, publishers were all over it. And then he won Canada Reads in 2011, which was in the run up to a federal election. And it's it's actually about. Um, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's a satire of Canadian politics in the run-up to a federal election. And, um, and uh, my, my husband, who's also my, my fellow artistic producer at Patrick Street Productions, read it and said, oh, my God, this would make a brilliant musical. And he approached Katrina Dunn at Touchstone Theatre because it was too big for our little company to do on our own. And, um, and we commissioned an adaptation of it. Um, four years ago, and here we are. I can't even believe. <laughs> I can't even believe we're here. Kind of, you know. Thank you. Um, and I, I heard that there was just so much um, that you can learn about Canadian politics through such an entertaining um, medium <laughs> like play and the theater. Yeah, that, that's actually a really good point to make. To be honest, a lot of the um, students here at UBC. A lot of the young people now, they're very kind of ambivalent and a little bit even kind of, I guess, apathetic towards uh, politics and Canadian politics in general. I don't think some of them even know, like, a lot of the party leaders that are uh, running for the election right now. You're right. And, you know, it's it's really funny that I should be that I should be talking to you about that at this moment, because this afternoon we had a school matinee for high school kids, and I just was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, I, and i got to say, I completely underestimated them. They were so engaged. Oh, and really? Laughed, yeah, mm-hmm. no, to my shock, and um, laughed at all the political jokes and absolutely loved the show. And all of us as a, as a cast were so um, excited by their response that we actually, and we never do this, you're not really like supposed to go running around in your costume and stuff, but we just ran right up into the lobby after the show and said, you guys are fantastic. Go see lots of shows and please vote. <laughs> That's great. Um, That's great. Yeah. But I know, I, I know what you mean about, uh, about um, young people being apathetic, and, and it's hard, it's, it's hard to, to blame them. I mean, it mm-hmm. seems like... It's impossible to change anything, no matter what you do, and that's actually uh, that's actually one of the strongest threads in this show. And our main character, Daniel, um, really has to, to discover that that he can make a difference, or that he at least needs to try. Whether he succeeds or not is a whole other thing, but he at least needs to try. Um, I think it's a, a great thing for um, for people to see in this run up to this election, and we've also. Uh, organized it so that you can register to vote in the lobby of the theater. Well, that's so great. Um, that's so yeah. great that you have kind of like that interplay of, you know, what's happening on stage and actually what's happening in real life. Exactly. And, and you know, that way, hopefully, if people are kind of a little bit motivated to, yeah, you know what, I'm going mm-hmm. to do it, I'm going to go to the polls, then they can, they can get themselves eligible and, and register right there mm-hmm. while they're having that thought. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. I had one question. Um, I know that looking through Parker Street Productions, you do a lot of musicals, which is amazing. It's awesome. How do you feel about the musical uh, musical genre as a satire, especially a political satire that kind of, you know, hits close to home? Um, uh, actually, I think it's a really good, a really good place for it. Um, mm-hmm. People are a little bit more, um, a little bit more receptive when there's music involved, to things being uh, being a bit fantastical, mm-hmm. and actually, it's got a it's got a, a long tradition. There was a show, oh my gosh, it would have been written in the early '30s, I think, called "A V.I. Sing," which is all about um, a political party in the U.S. Um, trying to um, uh, trying to figure out who their candidate had to be because of all kinds of. Um, uh, economic interests and concerns that they have, and and can they again? They, then can they marry off one of the daughters of? Uh, I mean, it, it, it's uh, it's ridiculous mm-hmm. and yet sort of shockingly possible. And it's all very jolly, and it's a it's a musical, a 1930s musical. So there's a there's a pretty storied history actually. And I know that this musical has been um, it's now nearing the end stages of its um, showings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Up until now, would you say that the response um, to this musical and kind of the political views that it holds, has the response been very um, diverse? Has it been quite a divisive play? Uh, No, I actually, I I would say the opposite. Um, 
people. One thing that that Terry Fallis's novel did really well, and that we have been we've been really really faithful to, is he sort of skewered everybody equally. Uh, I see. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's nobody that that goes unscathed. Everybody's as ridiculous as everybody else, um, or every party, I should say, is mm-hmm. as ridiculous as every other. Um, and uh, and audiences have been leaping to their feet and howling with laughter and cheering and all that stuff. It's really gratifying. Um, the press has been mixed, which is very interesting. I think there were, I don't know, I'm wondering if maybe there were expectations around what kind of a show it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but our audiences are, are uh, that's the voice that we really want to hear. And, and they've, been, they've been thrilled. And this school audience, I've got to say, it, it just knocks me out. I feel like if that's, you know, if, if that's kind of the the future of the theater going audience and the and the voting public, I think we're actually we're actually doing fine. <laughs> One thing I, I learned in your kind of your credit history is that you had you have a lot of um, theatrical experience and um, background working with Parker Street Productions, and um, I would say that you are a veteran actor. Were there any challenges <laughs> that you had with you know the best laid plans? Um, oh, it's, I should correct it. It's Patrick Street, by the way. It's, oh, pa- it's, um, Patrick Street. Yeah, no worries. Okay. Um, uh, let's see, challenges specific to this show? Yes. I think, um, let me think. I think probably wearing the two hats, which I have done a lot as a producer and a, and a performer. I've done that job a lot, but on this one, because um, the, the, the production side is so, is so enormous, um, because it has to do with workshopping and uh and and constantly refining and new drafts and and on and on we were getting we were getting script changes on op- on the day that we opened which oh, is wow. not unusual yeah <laughs> i know it and lyrics and stuff and and um and little bits of extra things and costume changes and stuff and um that's not unusual for a new play but but absorbing all of that and being one of the producers at the same time i think was a little bit of an extra challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It must have been quite um, quite the experience to be juggling both those huge responsibilities um, for the Best Laid Plans musical. Now, mm-hmm. um, when you guys were um, producing and practicing to uh, be be showing this musical to the general public, what were some of your... Um, visions or your goals that you hoped this play would be more than just entertainment and impact um, the thoughts or the attitudes um, I guess the general public held did you guys have a vision um, for a specific target audience or um, did you have any general kind of goals that you hoped um, this musical would bring out in people that came to see the show um we certainly did I mean the, the target audience was Canadian. Um, there's a there's a million musicals out there, but uh, but the great majority of them are American, which mm-hmm. is which is awesome. I mean, it's kind of it, it, it into the genre a bit. Um, but in terms of a real Canadian musical theater canon, there isn't a lot, and there isn't a lot that's excellent. Um, I mean, it's a very, very short list. And it, so, it is quite small compared to the the extent of American musicals. That's true. Oh, it's mm-hmm. true. And I mean, although I think that per capita we might be pretty close, but anyway, um, it's uh, <laughs> we want we hoped to contribute to that canon. We wanted to find an original Canadian voice for this extremely Canadian story in terms of the the music. And these two young composers, Anton Lipovetsky and Ben Elliott, are phenomenal the music to me is um is so contemporary and current um but it's it's also not kind of indie pop it's not anything that you hear on the radio it's a, it's particular mm-hmm. it, would, would you kind of call it like show tunesy um no you know oh, what really? not at all show oh, tunesy right. no it's just it's um it's exactly the right it's exactly the right music for these characters in these events mm-hmm. and there are many different styles of music involved so of an overarching goal uh the the message of the book it seems to me is shake it off and get out there and vote mm-hmm. invest in it you know because because apathy is easy 
cynicism is so easy to just say, oh, well, there's no point because it never makes any difference anyway, is really easy. What's hard is engaging with it. What's hard is to actually, you know, decide that you care because then, then you can be heartbroken and then, 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 then you can be hurt. However, you got to get out there and do it again. And just me kind of like falling in love, right? You got to keep at it and keep at it till you get what you want. <laughs> You're right. You have to put yourself out there and put out your views and your investment sure. into um, into this campaign as much as Justin Trudeau or Stephen Harper. Maybe not as much, but at least um, to some extent. Um, so tell me more about the team and um, the people that you got to work with um, as you help to produce the best laid plans um who made up the team and um what were i guess some of the some of the memorable moments when you guys were um, preparing for the show um just to give us as listeners a bit of a backstory of how you guys came to really um make this show what it is um right now sure <laughs> sure um it, well, let's see. The first person that we that we contacted was the the, the novelist Terry Fallis, who right. was who has been nothing but supportive and uh, very excited and curious to see what was going to come out the other end. Uh, he actually did come to Vancouver for opening weekend and saw the show three times and and just was over the moon about it, which is a great relief. Um, and the first person after that that we got on board was Vern Thiessen, who has written the the libretto or the book part of the show. Um, he's won a governor general's award for, for his plays. And, uh, and it's also just a really kind of funny down to earth guy who also had some experience as a political backroom guy when he was in his twenties. Um, so he kind of seemed ideal. And what took us the longest to get into place was the composers. But, um, but when we, when we hit on the team of Anton and Ben, who have actually done comparatively little of this kind of writing. They're both um, astonishing actors and, um, and I think are getting busier and busier with this kind of work. Uh, that's when things really started to, to get some momentum and, and, you know, kind of get a grip on the ground and start rolling. Uh, and um, all along, my, my, my husband, Peter Jorgensen, directed the show, was working really closely with all three of them. He's got a uh, a lot of expertise and experience with with musical theater. With, for example, knowing when a scene actually needs to be a song, stuff like that. Knowing where songs belong and 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 who ought to be singing them at what time and things like that. So he he really guided the shaping of it. We brought the rest of the cast on board. Oh, let's see. I think it would have been. Um, we've done a lot of workshops over the years, but we had the full cast in place by. I think January or February of this year, and that's to hear um, specific voices in the different roles, and uh, and you know really get a sense of identifying. Oh my God, that's who Eric Cameron's going to be! Fantastic, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, yeah, and again throughout Katrina Dunn, who's the artistic director at Touchstone Theater, our producing partner, um, was was on board as a dramaturg, which is something she has a lot of experience with. And she is, um, she's, she's worked with Vern in this capacity a lot as well and has, uh, has a great deal of knowledge and, and intuition about, um, about what works in plays and what doesn't. Uh, so it's, it's been a tremendous team. I think probably the, the, the moment that we, <laughs> that we all knew we had something kind of amazing was mm-hmm. the, the, Pretty much the first time we sang through everything and heard, well, heard Gordon Roberts, for instance, sing through Family Values, which is an outrageous song, and heard the actor Andrew Wheeler, who plays um, one of the leads, Angus McClintock, singing his, uh, his ballad, The Other Side, which is about his, his recently deceased wife, and, um, and heard the voice that Nick Fontaine, who's our lead and plays Daniel Addison, was going to provide through the entire piece, kind of the, the conscience of it, or he's the guy that we follow along and, um, and that the audience kind of, kind of, I don't know, attaches to along the way. Is he, is he yeah. like the, the, the common, the common guy, like the audience is supposed to kind of, um, see through his eyes. Uh, I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. And he go, he goes 
up and down and back and forth and get mm-hmm. tortured in various ways. <laughs> um, Just and like voters. End, yeah, he's kind of the, the voice of it. He's a UBC grad, by the way, Nick Fontaine. Oh, really? Yep. <laughs> well, it's always nice to hear that um, UBC students are out in the uh, theater scene and making in a the name real for world. themselves. Yeah. That's um, right. Well, thank so you. is Megan Chinoski. That's right. Megan Chinoski, who plays his love interest, is also a UBC grad. So there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's even more incentive for us UBC students to be showing our support by going out to see Best Laid Plans, um, the musical, and its final days of production. Um, as we just close off this interview, do you mind reminding us all of how we can get tickets? Sure. Uh, the easiest way to get tickets is at thecouch.com. Uh, you, can, you can purchase online. We've got, uh, I think it's six shows left. Thursday, no, uh, five shows, including tonight. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and uh, you can also just turn up at the box office and buy them on site, uh, although you're taking a chance. <laughs> and you can also call the Couch Box, op- box Office at uh, 604-251-1363, and they'll, they'll get you what you need. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for giving, spending your time here on the Arts Report, um, letting us know more about this musical. And we do hope that you guys have a great rest. Um, oh, great final you. five shows. My pleasure. And thanks for asking. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Welcome back. I hope you guys um, enjoyed that interview. We are going to be playing a playing a couple commercials um, and then we will be back with Andy and um, Andy Ashley. and Ashley's Ashley. Andy and <laughs> Ashley's VIF reviews. Timmy, your friends are here to see you. Get off the computer, will you? Hey Timmy, do you want to come out and shoot hoops with us at the park? Uh, you know what? I'm actually busy playing on the computer right now. Whatever. You never come out to play with us anymore. Let's go, guys. 30% of young adults are prone to stroke, and this statistic is on the rise. Stroke prevention starts early. Are you sure you don't want to play? My cousin's in town, and he's playing too. Strokes can be prevented by regular exercise, a healthy, balanced diet, and sleeping well. Uh, you know what? I'm coming too. Wait up for me, guys. Follow UBCHSF on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for regular tips on healthy living. Strong heart, strong start. The Study and Go Abroad Fair is back on Tuesday, October 6th. Meet face-to-face with top universities from around the world and start planning to travel. Learn about degrees in law, medicine, health sciences, arts, technology, pharmacy, business, hotel management, and much more. Check out our Travel Zone for volunteering, language programs, adventure travel, and work abroad. For more info, visit studyandgoabroad.com. Free admission. It could be global, trance, spoken word, rock, the usual and the weird, or it could be something different. Oral Tentacles, Thursdays 12 to 6 a.m. at CITR 101.9 FM. Welcome back to the Arts Report, guys. This is Ashley. And that's Andy. This is Andy. That's Andy. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Vancouver International Film Festival. We went on this No, last Sunday. Yeah, well, this. Yeah, last Sunday, I guess. A Sunday. A few days ago, Sunday. A few days ago, Sunday. Yep, and we saw um, four short films. Four films. Yeah, that we'll talk to you about today. That's quite a lot, guys. We kind of movie marathoned it. We went for it. We went from one theater to another. We ran. Eight hours or whatever it was. Yeah, eight hours. (laughs) That sounds like quite the adventure. Please tell me that these films were worth watching. Some, some, some were. Some of them. Some of them were. <laughs> All right. Some of them definitely were not. The first film that we watched was um, Kim, directed by uh, Shimizu Shunpei. It is about a Zainichi Korean living in Japan. He is a ex-boxer, and um, he is kind of going through a rough moment in his life. What do we like? What did we didn't? Let's go. What do we like? I liked almost everything. I thought it was a really smart film. Um, mm-hmm. It's about... You know the the lowest rungs of, of society. Everyone's people, marginalized. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like um, it's really the story of this K- Korean Japanese boxer meeting with this Japanese um, 
woman, woman who, housewife who who, who prostitutes who falls into prostitution. Yeah, it seems to me though that that prostitution is is of her own choice yep. because of her um, domestic abuse situation at home. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a recurring motif in this film where it's um, a Japanese man beating. Um, a Korean man or, or Japanese woman into like submission. There's no fighting back. It's really one-sided. Mm-hmm. So violence in this film is not ever bottom-up. It's always yeah. top-down. It's always um, maybe one boxer to another, one Jap- one uh, Korean to another. It's never... Um, a lot of uh, cyclical suffering. <laughs> right, yeah. And was that pretty um, emotional to watch? It, it, it was kind of in a way that you wanted them to fight back. You wanted them to take right. kind of that, you know, control back. But um, should we spoil alerted? Should we not? I think we, we sh- we're going to talk about spoilers, I think. Yeah, we're going to talk yeah. about a little bit of spoilers. Um, we, the one thing that we didn't like is that the fact that these people, you know, consistently get, you know, marginalized, consistently go through this abuse, but are unable to escape that kind right. of um, pattern. There's never that sense of catharsis when, you know, Kim, mm-hmm. you know, his, his arm is broken for the entire yeah, movie. You never his, see him arm is broken. punch anyone ever. Yeah. He's actually... You can a, you can tell that he could, though. He, he could probably he, kick your ass, but... He never does. He never does. He well, never I guess does. that's, like, a very real way to tell a movie. Like, the movie doesn't sugarcoat the reality of what abusive mm-hmm. relationships look like. And about mm-hmm. what systemic um, discrimination looks like. The next one that we saw was Rolling, directed by Tominaga Masanori. What did we like? What we didn't? Well, Rolling <laughs> is about a miscreant teacher um, who I think he filmed his students changing. Which is really messed up. Which is really messed up. And he's trying to win back the respect of his students years later. Right. And then it's kind of his mishaps in winning the respect of his students but also losing the respect of one student in particular who stood by in that entire time. What did we like? What we didn't? I think the first words I said to you after the movie it was over like it was I, I hated it. I absolutely yeah, you hated act- it. Yeah, you you said that to me. Like the first thing you said to me like I hated that movie, and I was like I, I tried to like defend it, but I I kind of couldn't. The only the reason why I, I wasn't really a fan of this movie was the way that girls were used in a way of right. objects of you know. Of um of of sexual kind of you know objects they kind of like play things they're kind of like dolls for these like two you know guys to fight over the teacher right. and the students. You never get a sense of who that the female character the main female character is. You never yeah. see if she's like a femme fatale or she's just a victim. Mm-hmm. It's really a confused movie in a lot of ways. I thought, and you know even the main uh, miscreant teacher character you're never sure if he's like this affable lech or maybe a kind of likable despite being a giant weirdo kind of character yeah. right he's like he's actually kind of reprehensible in a lot of ways but and the movie seems to be passing him off as you're a supposed to person. yeah you're supposed to feel bad for him and whatnot but and he, he's like he's supposedly loyal to a student but he's also really not kind of yeah. to me is this weird guy who can't forget the past and wants to go back to his glory days when students respected him but it's not um, it's not working. Yeah, tonally, it's just all over the place. I yeah. thought it was really a weird watch. Like the script is kind of a mess. I th- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, to put it lightly. <laughs> to put it lightly, but you know, it was really humorous in a way that it's kind of bordering on the absurd. If you want to see something that kind of makes no sense, but it's kind of enjoyable in, in some of these like short scenes of really surrealist humor. That is that's rolling for you. Yeah, there's one gag I thought was funny, but everything else was I just <laughs> hated it. Okay. Okay, moving on. Moving on. Speed round. The next one is O Brazen Age, directed by Alexander Carson. This is a Canadian film, and um, it is about kind of these uh, hipsters. They're actually like they're described hipsters. as that in the synopsis. Yeah, they're they're these hipsters, and um, they are kind of um, looking for faith. And what does that mean in the 21st century? And you have all these, like, um, young adults who are supposedly, supposedly supposed to be good friends, but there's a lot of underlying tension. Right. These are guys who have been friends for pretty much decades. They're going into their 30s. They're on the end of end of their 20s. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this film's about. It's about a, a true ensemble cast. You know, there's a, probably half a, over half a dozen characters, yeah. I think. Right. I like this film a lot. I don't. I'm, I'm still not sure why. Um, it just. I I liked it a lot too. There was something about, I guess, the the way that um, the film 
was really delicately kind of shot. Like, there was no... It's a beautiful film. It is a pretty beautiful film, and it kind of plays with that idea of, like, faith being, like, a fantasy of of what is exactly faith and whatnot. And um, one thing I re- that made me laugh is, like, how hipster these guys are. They're really, really hipster. They're the most hipster people. And it's funny because, yeah. like, in the end, you realize that these are incredibly middle-class people who grew up in gigantic houses. Yep. Like, at first you think, oh, these are, like, artistic kind of people they're they're like kind of like you know know, living off their art and whatnot but no they have the means rich (laughs) they have the means to travel (laughs) the the one thing that i personally really liked was this um this kind of this kind of hidden underlying message that they were all kind of partaking in but no one was going to really break that bubble it appeared that none of these characters really enjoyed each other's company after you know much more years later but they all kind of stick together is this kind of like a weird faith that we have as you know people who make friends you know who keep their friends from a long time ago but still don't really care for them do we have that kind of faith that we'll fall back into friendship again like that's like one of the main things that i particularly kind of you know resonated with me yeah like it's like all these characters are in a kind of stasis and Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie it seems to me like half the characters are kind of maybe moving making the move towards breaking out of the stasis and the other half not so much so you get a kind of you know either or situation at the end Mm -hmm. oh so yeah brazen oh brazen age i think this should be coming out um uh wider in wider release yeah it was it was really great and uh last but not least is port of call port of call port of call directed by philip young it is a um it is a cop drama movie about a young girl who is um brutally br- really yeah, brutally yeah. murdered yeah uh and uh it's about this cop trying to figure out why this person did it like why did he do it right yeah it's a hong kong cop drama so if you've mm-hmm. seen one of those that you've you've probably find something very um familiar in this movie i kind of really didn't like this movie um i i, I liked it in the first few hours the one thing that this movie had was it had a really good cast of characters, but it lingered on some far too long. It created too much exposition so that a movie that could have been neatly cleaned up in an hour and something was like two hours something long. Yeah, it's like something like four acts and it just felt like it went forever. Oh, Brazen Age went for a Shakespearean five-act structure, yep. but that felt a lot breezier than, yep. than Port of Call, which was so long. It, the thing is, we... The the main character was wondering why, 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 and then kept on digging, digging, digging. And the more that he dug, the more that the, you know, the more that... That the he, backstory of all the characters were revealed? Yeah, kind of. But it also it also made the movie structure so weak that right. the tunnel collapsed. Dramatically, we're led to believe, I think, that there's something more to this murder. Because we actually find out who murdered this girl and, and why and how she very d- quickly. does it very yeah. quickly, within yeah. probably 20 minutes. But the entire movie is about, maybe there's something more. And we're led dramatically to believe that, well, maybe there is something more. Maybe this guy is right. Yep. But no, he's, nope. he isn't right. Mm-hmm. So I, I was talking to you earlier about this movie, and I thought it was an exploitation movie in some yeah. ways. It was apparently based on a true right. story, right? It's based on yeah. a true story. And it, it, like it's just this very horrifying um, murder and that's what the movie is based on but i think what um the director philip young is trying to do is to expand on the exploitation to Mm -hmm. add some depth but at the end of the day it's really about this horrific murder that we see we we see it reenacted in gruesome detail it's uh it was like a fun way to end the night let's just say (laughs) yeah and that's kind of it. I, but, just, you know, I didn't care for it that much. Again, this is just a few things that are happening in the Vancouver International Film Festival. You have all sorts of different genres from, you know, crime to um, an art CP. I don't know how to call it, Age. But if you are interested, go check it out. There are multiple venues around town and a lot more yeah. films to see. Most of them are in downtown except for the Rio. So they're all within walking or transit distance. Yep. And those are great reviews, guys. Um, we do hope that you guys will be back to talk about more of the films um, next week. Right now, we have on the line uh, the cast of Romeo and Juliet. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Hi. And um, joining us today are Camille and Adelaide, who portray Romeo and Juliet respectively. Welcome to CITR Arts Report. Thank Hello. you. Hi. All right, guys. 
So first of all, let's kind of talk Shakespeare. How do you feel about his work? Any plays that you guys like in particular? Of, uh, of the Shakespeare's plays? Of Shakespeare's plays, yep. <laughs> um, well, I've really fallen in love with Romeo and Juliet, just mm-hmm. having done it. Um, it was something that I read when I was like 14 and and um, saw as something we did in English class, but <laughs> bringing it to life, I've really, really found a love for it. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, this is Camille speaking, and I agree with Audelay in that uh, I studied Romeo and Juliet when I was in high school, but uh, lately I've had found a new passion for it, but I've also really enjoy mm-hmm. uh, Shakespeare's comedies, like Much Ado About Nothing, love mm-hmm. that one, uh, and I, for his dramas, I really, I've always liked uh, Macbeth as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Ooh, I love Hamlet. Hamlet. Oh, like, yeah. Like, all in my heart. Yeah. A lot of the big tragedies here. Yeah. Now, this production of Romeo and Juliet by uh, Studio 58, you guys have a new historical background. It's set in the mid-1960s and specifically brings up Andy Warhol. How did the setting change the portrayal of the characters that you both play? Um, well, uh, it's because it's in New York and... Mm-hmm. and uh, in like 65 uh it's uh well we're each we're playing each girls yeah <laughs> that's different um, which is different mm-hmm. and um and i think part of it it's like uh we we've got these um <laughs> i think it makes it more more modern uh mm-hmm. that we can bring more of ourselves to it uh as well there's almost this grungy edge to it because the whole show takes place in the factory Mm-hmm. Uh, so our costumes are a little bit edgier than, say, the traditional Romeo and Juliet costumes might be. Uh, and as well, yeah, Romeo, at least for me, Romeo's a girl, uh, so I can bring more feminine qualities to Romeo. Mm-hmm. And that, that actually, you know, that, that was kind of the big elephant in the room that we got to, which is great. The, historically, the roles of women were played by male actors in Shakespeare's time, and even today some productions actually, you know, continue that tradition. So one thing I wanted to ask you guys is, is gender performative, as um, theater critic and theorist Judith Butler says? You know, have you had to act in a way that you feel is performing kind of characteristics of a gender, or was it a little bit more different for you guys? Um, I, this is Camille speaking, mm-hmm. I literally just brought myself into it, so I didn't necessarily have to think about uh, making Romeo more feminine or... or more uh, masculine or something uh, Yeah, like I, I, made, I made her a bit more masculine um, because uh, it's, she's just a bit different from me in that way. She's more mm-hmm. uh, aggressive and bold and um, brave and everything, uh, so I made her more, more of those things. But not to say those are masculine qualities yeah, right after yeah, that. Again, that uh, idea is all stereotypical. That's kind of, you know, the, the the thing that people want you to think is a masculine trait. That shouldn't be in like a, that shouldn't be, you know, considered a, uh, something that, you know, should be feminine or whatnot. So I understand where you're going for with that. That's not, you know, you're not doing it just to be more manly. It's just a part of her character. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just said in the text. So I brought that more forward. Um yeah, but it's been really interesting of playing with that, uh, with that new level of confidence that she holds and everything, um, and how she's still she's still a girl though she still has those feminine qualities, but she also uh, she's also very very confident in herself, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess I guess as myself I, I I'm not as used to. Okay, that actually kind of you know segues into my next question. Were there any challenges for both of you guys in playing, you know, opposite to one another in a romantic light? Or, you know, was it much more easier? Like, how, how, how did the um, casting of having two women affect you guys, uh, your guys' performance? Well, this is Audelay speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found, like, uh, Camille and I have known each other for a long time. We went to high school together and we've mm-hmm. been on stage and done improv, so... I'm very used to, like, having her back and her having mine. So us being really comfortable around each other was, like, a brilliant start to, <laughs> to having to dive into such uh-huh. of extremes. Course. Um, but, yeah, I think, um, I think lots, of, um, lots of the um, fun of the two of their relationship comes really naturally to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's a total blast to, to fall in love with a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, to be honest. 
Well, how do you how do you guys both see the tragic romance between Romeo and Juliet? It's kind of interesting. Um, Anita was saying, uh, mm-hmm. who's our director, it's it's so interesting to see as the play goes on, the fault can be in so many different people's hands. Like who whose fault is it really, and and where is the tragedy? And I don't know if I have an answer for that because it seems to like me uh, looking through it in Juliet's eyes, I'm feeling like um, who knows if it's even a tragedy because she ends up what with what she wanted to be with, with Romeo. Um, mm-hmm. so they just want to be together so bad and they'll do anything to be together. So yeah, it's hard. It's, yeah, it's hard to say whose fault it is if it mm-hmm. is it's their fault in a way because they're so passionate towards each other if maybe they had taken it more slow if they had been more rational would this have happened um but i feel like in a way like as i'm going through this show like tragedy is so romantic in a way it's almost as if romeo is just drawn to tragedy like she just <laughs> he's pretty she kind of yeah, enjoys it like dramatic. 10% of herself enjoys it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. being in it um, so yeah, it's hard to say where the blame really comes from. Were there? I, I just wanted to ask: Were there any other, um, I guess, cisgender switches in terms of casting, or were the only kind of gender, um, I guess, switches the main two leads of the play? There were some gender switches. Yeah. Okay, but you can't tell us, or? Uh, no, I can tell you. Oh, great. Uh, uh, Balthazar mm-hmm. uh, is played originally by a guy, um, and I know we've changed like some of. Some of the smaller roles we've changed uh, to be girls rather than guys. Mm-hmm. They had men's names originally, mm-hmm. and we changed them to girls' names. I'm not sure which one specifically. Oh, no, there are yeah. um, there are police officers that are mm-hmm. female, mm-hmm. and we've got some like real strong <laughs> female <laughs> actors playing the um, police officers. So it's very much more of an inclusive theatrical space for women. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. your production takes on a context of a lesbian relationship between the two characters. Does that affect the storyline of the classic play at all? Were there any kind of script changes that were made or no? Honestly, I think the play suits this so well that mm-hmm. it's all about um, the two lovers not seeing past labels and, and like originally being the family feuding and the Montague label and Capulet label. Um, now it's just, um, it makes total sense to me that these characters see past the fact that they're both girls in a second, and, yeah, and the only big changes would be that we've changed, like, she's. Yeah, oh, just okay. the pronouns, really. Yeah, so pronouns. the language is still the old Shakespearean uh, language. Yeah, for the most part. Some oh, of okay. it, uh, Anita, our director, would switch, like, horse-drawn carriage or something like that. Ah, uh, yeah, to kind of... A bit more modern that would make sense in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Now, that actually leads to my next question. Do you guys still think that Shakespeare is relevant today? Or if it's not, how can we change it so that his stories are still relevant today? I think it's extremely relevant today, yeah. uh, and it's always been because it explores so much of who we are as humans, uh, love, hate, jealousy, mm-hmm. um, vanity. It explores all of that, those things that uh, sometimes we're too embarrassed to admit that we feel so much of. Um, so it's nice to see, that, like, I still really enjoy seeing Shakespeare shows today because I relate to them so much. Yeah, definitely. So sorry to interrupt. I have one question. Actually, that is our. That's another arts reporter, Andy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, one. Well, I'm interested in the way in which Romeo and Juliet um, kind of turns into from a comedy in, into a tragedy, that's, which is a unique, I think, among Shakespeare's other tragedies. It's always usually um, one man who's a king or something and he falls down. <laughs> but Romeo and Juliet, I think, is interesting um, in that you start off with this very traditional comedic structure where you have Romeo and Juliet who are, want to be together, but their families want to keep them apart. Right. Oh no. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> yeah. classic Shakespeare comedy, right? Mm-hmm, it is. Is that something that yeah. informed your uh, your production at all? You think? I think we're. Um, I'm. I'm in no way thinking like, and now I'm acting the tragedy part. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like it's beautiful the way uh, um, Shakespeare's crafted the scenes to be a mixture of both tragedy and comedy, and that like 
in one moment where um, I won't I won't spoiler here, but maybe <laughs> someone is dead, um, okay. and and then like perhaps musicians walk in, in just that moment, like um, there's just like there's no definition to tragedy and comedy, and that makes it that kind of has the audience in such a strange spot the whole time. So I think we've definitely played with. Um, played with when the audience is laughing, when they're crying, when they're confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it still follows in a way of that sudden downfall mm-hmm. um, because it just happens so fast, everything going wrong. Um, and it, it's hard to keep up with, yeah, like, well, whose fault is it? How did this even happen? If we did this just a little bit differently, it could have been different. Um so, yeah, I think it's still, even though there's still elements of comedy mixed with tragedy, I think it still has that sudden downfall to it. Yeah, for sure. My my final question is, is um, as you guys are playing these characters, do you have a specific vision or a kind of a purpose that you want to convey to your audience? A good question. Hmm. Hmm. I'd say um, so much of the universal quality of, of what it is, to be in love and and that that is something that every individual um has felt in a different way and i think i'd like i'd like for people to be able to relate when they see this and i think <laughs> they will um but that like all of these feelings and and the and the open-hearted characters that just display their their feelings and how they're how, what they're going through um that others would be able to grasp grasp onto those words and remember those times and and be on that journey with us. Yeah, I think I'd like people to, uh, my, my first thought were two things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like people to realize um, just the passion of young love and how crazy that passion is mm-hmm. and like how we've all been there and just remembering that of how, oh yeah, I saw this girl for like like five minutes and she was my everything. <laughs> um, I find that amazing about this show. And for me, personally, um, it was stepping up to the plate of, of playing this character that was mm-hmm. usually played by a guy and how that can be done, and it can be done for any character, uh, and that women can do that, and that they, like, I have to do this intense fight scene, and it took me a while to learn and everything, but now I feel really confident That's in impressive. it. So I feel like I want... I don't know. I just want, like, if I was younger, I would love to see this show and see a girl playing it. It would inspire me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now this is a really, really kind of, like, a little bit, you know, offbeat kind of question. But I noticed that the stylization of the title is Romeo and then plus Juliet was, can you, do you guys know if director Anita Roshan did it because she was inspired by Baz Luhrmann's version? Uh, have you seen Baz Luhrmann's Oh, uh, yeah, version? yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. Think so. Hi. I think it might have just come naturally to her to write mm-hmm. Romeo plus Juliet. That's my first mm-hmm. thought of that. I don't think she was inspired by uh, Baz Luhrmann's version. Uh, what do you think of? I don't know. Um, maybe it's just to me that seems m- more sixties, perhaps, than oh, the yeah, old-fashioned. Um, kind of, kind of like, kind of the olden days. Yeah, kind of suiting into the nineteen sixty-five <laughs> vibe, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe that was, but we've actually had, I haven't had a discussion with her about the plus sign. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So before we sign off, again, this is Studio 58's Romeo and Juliet. Is there, um, do you want to tell our listeners on how we can see this marvelous kind of um, reinterpretation of this play? Um, Well, uh, Studio 58 is in the basement of Langara College. Um, and you can always go to tickets.tonight.ca, um, slash, or, or you can, um, there's a phone number, 604-684-2787, just off the top of my head. Um, and, uh, it, it opens October 1st all the way to the 18th, Tuesdays to Saturday at 8 p.m., and Saturday and Sunday at 3 p.m. All right, well... Great. Thank you so much for, um, you know, for coming on the show today. And we wish you the best of luck with Romeo and Juliet. It sounds like an incredible kind of experience for you guys and a delight for audiences to kind of experience themselves. Absolutely. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. All right. Thank you and have a good one, guys. Yeah. Bye. 
Thank you, Ashley, for that amazing interview. Oh, and also Andy. Um, I liked your little cameo, Andy. It was great. (laughs) It was really great, and that was a very thoughtful question. What we're going to do now is play one quick commercial, and then we'll be back to close off our show and introduce you guys to the next show. We have Sharing Science with Extremophiles. Um, this, This episode of Sharing Science involves Alan, who is in biomedical physics, Nathan in engineering physics, and Sam in biology. I wonder what extremophiles would be. Hidden City Records presents Data Plan, Summering, and Aura Kogan, live in the Planetarium, October 22nd. An evening of incredible psychedelic art rock and psych folk featuring large-scale celestial projections choreographed by guest video artists Matt Crisco, Jared Brandle, Mohammed Ali Sharar, and Colin Elder. Located at HR McMillan Space Center. Tickets available at eventbrite.ca, Zulu, Redcat, and Dandelion Records. Doors at 8. As I promised, um, we are going to be ending off our show, but right before we do, I'd like to just highlight two key events that... We just love um, you too much, guys. We do, and we don't <laughs> want to say goodbye, but um, I just want to highlight two key events really quickly, and then we'll say goodbye. Until next week, that is. So, the first one, I'd like to do a shout-out for the Health and Education Conference at Roy Barnett Theatre next Tuesday. It is going to be hosted by the UBC Students of Climate for Climate Action. And it will feel, feature talks from Dr. Gabor Mate and Professor Adele Diamond. It's going to be a very informative event on mental health and a great way to combat negative stigma around men- 